Well, good morning once again. If you have your Bible, Jude, in the New Testament, the second to the last book of the Bible, page 866 in the Church Bibles, if that would be of help to you. And in just a moment, I'm going to begin reading in verse 14 and ending at verse 16. And um, as always, if you have a question or two about Jesus, the Bible, or what you've heard this morning, I will gladly do my best to try to answer those questions for you when our time together is done. And just one last mention to those of you that are new or consider yourself new. I've never been to a newcomer's lunch. It would be a pleasure to have you when um, we end our service this morning. Verse 14. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ugly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. If you're wondering why we're here this morning in this passage, we've been working through Jude since March. And so if you're here for the first time, this is just um, our way of working verse by verse. And here we are this morning. I thought it was fitting that it fit perfectly with our New City Catechism question as well. So let's bow together and pray as we seek the help that we need from our gracious God. All people are like grass. And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that is preached to you. Now, our gracious God and Father, we would ask that you'd have mercy on us this morning and forgive us of our sins of omission and commission. And we would ask, God, that you would help us now by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we might listen and speak so we could think and believe and obey. And as always, God, I know that I can't do what I need to do without your help. And so I ask for that help now. And I would plead with you on a morning like this that you would make my words your words for Jesus' sake. Amen. If death ended it all, then all we would have is now. And so enjoying the moment or planning for another would be all that really mattered. But the Christian knows and the Bible teaches and in many ways our own conscience confirms that there is a life beyond the grave and the Christian life lived on earth is preparation for the life which will come in heaven. Not only this, but the Christian life lived on this earth will be what Christ examines to determine what is to be rewarded to the Christian in the life that will come in heaven. In other words, there is a divine appointment which cannot be avoided and because of this, the well-taught Christian knows that their well-grounded hope of heaven will not encourage a slothful and and sinful security. For we must all, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body whether good or bad. Therefore, what the Christian does and what the Christian fails to do today with what we have been entrusted with and the context God has placed us in will matter for all eternity. This judgment for the Christian is not a heaven or hell judgment. 
Because as we've sung and as I will say, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That judgment only for the Christian was paid for fully at Calvary's cross. However, this judgment, which Jesus and Paul and John and others spoke of clearly as a, as a fair judgment, as a sensible judgment, as a fatherly judgment, a judgment that won't make heaven any less heaven, this judgment is not to be ignored or pitched aside, but this judgment is to, in many ways, set our paces as we live our life, as this judgment will be, again, Christ's assessment on the nature, on the value, and the motivation of the work, why we actually did what we have done for Jesus with the time that he's given us, the talents that he's given us, the gifts, provisions, and opportunities which have been entrusted to us by Christ himself. I mean, just think of that. Christ himself has entrusted us with these gifts, gifts, delegated us tasks in the scenes and the settings and in every season in our life. And if our labor done for Christ survives the test, 1 Corinthians 3, we will, verse 14, receive a reward. If not, if it is found to be wanting, then we will not receive the reward. Heaven, yes, absolutely, and no less heaven, but reward, no. And if this matters enough to God and to Christ that he would so graciously tell us these things, then it seems a sensible response that it ought to matter to us as well as good children who long to please their heavenly Father. However, Jude speaks of here of another judgment. It is a moral and it is a final judgment. And this terrible idea that is this final decisive day is something that is announced not only at the end of the Bible or just in our New Testament, but as we'll discover this morning, this judgment was announced basically since the beginning of time and all throughout the Bible. But, as many of you know and and perhaps may believe, human nature generally says that, um, maybe they like to imagine is a better phrase, as they consider their end or as they consider the end of the world, that everybody goes to heaven or at the very least those who are excluded are simply wiped out of existence. But again, the Bible and our conscience out of love and not hate warns us and tells us what we may do to flee the coming wrath. And I say conscience particularly because this is what we know. When we do something that, is, that we know is wrong, there is in a normal conscience an immediate desire either to fix it or to seek some kind of forgiveness or a sadness of heart or even fear. Why is that? It is because God has put in us this sense, this, this divine sense of retribution that is very real. Therefore, when we sin, we run and try to do something. Well, what is that? It is, it is the God-implanted reality that alerts us to the truth that all sin is a serious, costly affair and that no one gets away with anything and no religious work or exercise is able to deal with sin the way it ought to be dealt with before the face of God. So so the individual is left with a choice. Do we cast ourselves on the mercy of God and ask Him to substitute Christ's sufferings for our sin, uh, Christ's sufferings that happened in a real moment in time, in order that we would not have to pay for our sin for all time? Or do we remain unrepentant and defiant when confronted by the gospel truth, when confronted by our own conscience and God's claim in our life? And therefore, then, if we stay in that state, 
soon to face God's full wrath on our unatoned for sin. So that's the choice. Which one? Is it his sufferings, Christ's sufferings at Calvary? Or will it be our own suffering forever? So sometimes people say, that just sounds so Old Testament. Okay, then listen to your New Testament. This is Paul, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, to the Christians. And this is Paul, who turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, you ready? Who rescues us from the coming wrath. Rescues us from the coming wrath. The coming wrath that if your Bible is open, and I would hope it is, that these certain people, you can see it there, verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse 16, verse 19, these certain people who have no fear of the judgment or God's wrath. And they have crept into this church by way of stealth. The church is sleepy, so Jude writes a letter to help them awake. And as I've said already, this is the basic Bible doctrine of a day of judgment, and that day is not something new to humanity or new in the time of Jude, but actual fact, it's ancient. Enoch. See it there, verse 14, seventh from Adam. So if you have a worship folder, you can turn to the back and there's four words that we'll work through this morning. The first word is mercy, as in the mercy of God. Because frankly, if you're thinking, we immediately ought to be struck at the great mercy of God, which has kept warning men and women and young people again and again since the dawn of time. I am coming to judge. Are you ready? Get ready. The clock is ticking. So we have Enoch, Moses, David, Job, Malachi, Zechariah, Christ, Paul, Peter, John, and many others in this main and plain continuous appeal. Repent. The judgment is coming. Listen to Acts chapter 17. God commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him, Christ, from the dead. So what a mercy that God would warn us and provide for us the way of escape. But it's not only a mercy here in verses 14 and 15. It's actually a depiction of a penalty, which is our second word already. Can you believe it? We're already on our second word. Penalty. You see, Jude is saying to his readers, God will not only preserve his people from the savage nature of these deceivers, but he will bring down a permanent penalty on them. So Jude uses the reality of the judgment coming as an assurance for the church that as wicked and as unruly as these deceivers are, and they are wicked and, and unruly, they did not take God by surprise. For his judgment on them was proclaimed way back in the day of Enoch, the seventh from Adam, and Enoch saw who will fall under God's judgment. They saw that. He, he understands and he says that they'll be convicted of their deeds and their words they have spoken against him. So it's an assurance to the church and it's a warning to the deceivers. And it also lets us know that God will do a wonderful job of of taking care of the task of punishment. That's what we're going to learn in verses 17, Lord willing, next week. God's got this all under control. We're, we're not the great punishers. So it's a mercy that God would warn us. It's a depiction of a penalty that God will give to them. But number three, it's also consistency. 
consistency in the description God has given again and again to give us a proper sense of this real judgment. In other words, God's objective and God's purposes in the coming day of judgment has always been the same. Again, verse 14, now Enoch. Enoch, who Jude quotes from, was born while Adam was still alive. It's important that you understand that. Enoch was around when Adam was around. So essentially, the people that came out of Adam's... um, (laughs) Not his womb, but his wife's womb and others. You'll forgive me. Genesis 5 records for us a list of all these births from Adam's line to Noah's. Verse 22, Genesis 5, it reads, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. Yes, it is a mystery how, how Enoch left the earth. But the question comes, sometime during his life, was Enoch given the grace to prophesy this part of the picture of the day of judgment? Answer, Yes, but however, if you look carefully, and I I hope you do, at verses 14 and 15, what you'll know is that many modern translations, you you will see those verses in quotes. So if you have NIV, you see the word see, it begins in quotes, and if you track your finger all the way down to the end of verse 15, you'll see that it's closed quotes. It's in a quote because Jude uses another source. And what modern translators do as a help, when, when a biblical author in the New Testament is quoting a passage from the Old Testament, they'll put a little letter or maybe a number in a text note to tell you that the writer is drawing his quote from somewhere in the Old Testament. Here you're going to notice that there's no text note. There's no number, no letter, even though it's in quotes. So you have to ask yourself the question, who's he quoting? Well, he's quoting Enoch. Well, how do you know? So Jude is quoting from Enoch, who who we read of in Genesis, but was never cited in the whole of the Bible as saying what Jude wrote down and attributed to Enoch here in verses 14 and 15. So you'll not find this quote that is put in quotes anywhere in Genesis, nor will you find this quote anywhere in the whole of the Old Testament or the Bible itself, which means what? Which means this prophecy came from an extra-biblical source. Namely, a book called One Enoch. Okay, now let me just take a moment to explain to you about this. This is what is called a pseudepigrapha book. And all that means is false name. In other words, the name on the book is not actually the writer of the book. This book was a culmination of the oral tradition, which was passed down from generation to generation by the Jewish people until it was actually recorded by Jewish scribes in a manuscript, some of them starting around two or 300 B.C., uh, no later than 200 A.D., and this book then is given the title One Enoch, and that is the book that Jude is quoting from. Well, how do you know that? Because we have the manuscripts. We have this exact quote in, in the book of Enoch. Therefore, even though this quote in verses 14 and 15 was not part of the Old Testament canon of Scripture, Jude knows, and he's confident here, that historically it is accurate, And this is a good point, and it's consistent with the Old and New Testament explanation of what is to be expected at the judgment. So, are you with me? Jude grabs a quote from another book other than the Bible to tell of the certainty of judgment, and that quote rings true with all of the Bible, Old and New Testament, about that account of the last day. Now, this book, 1 Enoch or Enoch 1, depending on how you'd like to say it, was probably known, no doubt, by many of Jude's readers. It was one of those books that was 
everybody would know. For instance, if you lived in the 16th and 17th century, maybe in the 21st century, it's a Pilgrim's Progress quote. And you'll know that Jude did the same thing in verse 9. Again, if your Bible's open. In verse 9, he quotes from the archangel Michael. And again, we have no reference between that conversation between Michael and the devil and the whole of the Bible. Where do we find that quote? We find it in the book, The Assumption of Moses, the pseudepigraphal book called The Assumption of Moses. And of course, the fact that Jude draws from another source other than the Old Testament shouldn't bother you one bit. Paul did the same thing. Let me just give you one example. 2 Timothy 3.8. Paul mentions two people who opposed Moses, Janus and Jambres, whose names cannot be found anywhere else in the whole of the Scripture. Now, again, verse 14 and 15. Jude draws from the book, one Enoch, and the point of all this is this, that this picture of what will take place in the final judgment is the same picture throughout the whole of the Bible and throughout the whole of the human race. It's so important that you understand this. In other words, this doctrine of the day of God's judgment is an ancient one and it's an absolutely consistent one. Nothing has changed throughout the beginning of time about this day. Let me just give you some biblical references. Deuteronomy 33, 2 and 4. Isaiah 66, 15 and 16. Isaiah 40, 4 and 10. Jeremiah 25, 31, Micah 1, 3, 4, Habakkuk 3, 3, 9, Zechariah 14, 5, Acts 1, 9 through 11, Matthew 25, and Matthew 13, which reads, and this is the words of Jesus, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad one away, or the bad ones away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels, the holy ones, will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, the doctrine of the day of God's judgment is an ancient one and it is a consistent one. Nothing has changed throughout the whole of the scripture. Nothing has changed since the beginning of time. Now, I say that, and I suspect some of you know that because I say that because in our age, so many would say that what God has declared has changed. And so you ask them the reason, and they say, well, because times have changed, and we've changed, so God must have changed. Loved ones, I can assure you that God hasn't changed. And if he has, then the cross of Jesus Christ was a cruel hoax. The finished work of Christ, um, unfinished, and therefore the whole Bible may not be trusted. So on Easter morning, there was an ABC talk show this week. And I didn't watch it, of course, on Easter morning. I was here, as you know. But I did watch it on YouTube. And there was the religious panel for Easter, as you would suspect. And there was three men and a lady. Cookie Roberts was the lady. And one of the men was Dr. Russell Moore. And listen to what he said. It's perfect, I think. What he said was response to the statistics that show us that um, less and less people go to church and less and less people like the church. This is what he says. I think what we are seeing is the collapse of a cultural nominal form of Christianity. There was a time in America where in order to be a good person and seen as a good citizen, one had to nominally, culturally, be part of a church. 
Those days are over. And so we are at the point now where Christianity is able to be authentic. And Christianity is able to be authentically strange. Because when many people now hear what Christians believe from the Bible, their response is, that sounds freakish, odd, strange. Of course it does. For we believe that a previously dead man is now the ruler of the universe and offers forgiveness of sins to anyone who will repent and believe, which, which received the same reaction in the first century Roman world. It's beautiful, right? What's he saying? Well, he's saying the truth, the real truth, has never, ever changed. And so in our context, the real truth about the judgment has never, ever changed. So it's a mercy that God would warn us. The judgment revealed in verses 14 and 15 is a depiction of the ultimate penalty that God will give and the consistency that has marked the telling of this day from holy men of God since the beginning of all creation so that humanity has known for thousands and thousands of years. And though men mock this day, this day is an absolute certainty. And therefore, because the day is a certainty, this is what we may know, verses 14 and 15. The Lord is coming. In this coming, the Lord is coming with, do you see it there? This, this, this uh, massive accumulation, thousands upon thousands of Christ's holy ones. In, in the Greek, the phraseology that Jude uses here is the highest possible number of holy ones. You, you know, you don't know if you should cry or laugh. It's a great scene. It's a horrible scene. Essentially, all of heaven will be emptied out for this event. Listen to your Bible, 1 Thessalonians 3.13. When our Lord Jesus Christ comes with all, pas is the Greek word, with all his holy ones, every bit of heaven, is it unimaginable? Well, sure, but is it certain? You bet. And this certainty of judgment is universal. This is verse 14 again. To judge, to convict, all. To judge everyone, all. All the ungodly of all their ungodly acts and all their harsh words they have spoken against Christ. Because to speak evil against Christ's people and to speak evil against Christ's church, which these deceivers were doing, is essentially speaking evil of Christ. So there's this line of thinking that appears to be coming out here that these deceivers may not deny that Christ is coming, but in their minds his coming would be no trouble at all for them. After all, they were fine in their minds. But what do we know about the judgment? Well, what we know is what Jesus said, that one of the big emotions at the judgment is going to be total surprise. Surprise because when people thought they were in, they will be actually out. And since pride always loses what it seeks to gain, the pride of these deceivers have blinded their minds and blinded them to the reality of their real need of a real Savior and King. That's the certainty of a universal judgment but there's also the certainty of a moral judgment. Again, verses 14 and 15, that's that word ungodly. When, it, when you read it in the English, it reads kind of awkward. Asebius is the Greek word. It, it's more fluid in the Greek. It's the strongest word that could be used to describe a complete moral and spiritual collapse in thought and word and in action. So these deceivers, they fail to honor what is sacred. There is absolutely no reverence for God and His church and Christ. There's no fight put up against sin. Because they've just f fully thrown themselves into saying no to what God says yes to and yes to what God says no to. In other words, in this circumstance in Jude, these deceivers may go to church, but that's it. 
they have failed to obey Jesus Christ at the most basic of his instructions, which begins with repentance. And that's why Jude says they're self-willed and self-ruled and they follow their own way. Now, Dick Lucas gives a wonderful commentary on this passage. Let me read it to you. Once people think they are free from any scrutiny by God or his moral law, they feel free to cut themselves loose from his standards. God will be seen as a grumbling but ultimately soft-hearted parent who makes impressive threats but cannot bring himself to act upon them. That is the assumption that many well-intentioned people have today who honestly do not believe that God will act as he said he will act and judge men and women according to his moral law he has revealed. Such a view hampers any Christian because once we cease to believe in the God the Bible reveals, we will feel free to indulge ourselves by making God in our own image. We devise a God who changes his mind about evangelism because we prefer to think that everyone will be saved or a God who changes his mind about our obligations as Christians to be involved in society because we would prefer to think that he's concerned only with, quote, spiritual things. A God who is subject to my subjective thoughts, which I cleverly describe as leadings. The deceivers in Jude had fabricated a God who was not concerned about a Christian way of life and the result was a brazen disregard for Christian standards. In a word, they were ungodly. And as Bingle says, a sinner is bad, but one who sins without fear is worse. Now I have to ask you this morning, is that any of us here, is that any of us here, we fail to obey Jesus at the most basic level of his instruction. So, so yeah, you're religious, and you know the right words, and you know the right phrases, and you have the right look. But by lip and by life, you remain unregenerated, unconverted, unrepented. Uh, for you, for, for someone to obey Jesus presupposes a work of Jesus in their hearts. This is regeneration. This is being born again. This is a new mind and a new heart where the law of God is written into our very psyche. But if the heart is not set right by grace, there's nothing that you can do to keep it right. Self then, self first is the posture of the unrenewed heart. And the biases and the moves and the designs and the actions of these deceivers are simply an engineering of their own minds with no Christ involved at all. And if that is us, then look at verse 16. Because verse 16 gives us the clarity. That's the flow of the text. Verses 14 and 15, judgment. And then verse 16, these are the kind of people who will be at the judgment and found wanting. This is their bent. Verse 16, these people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. So what Jude is doing is giving us a similar scene as the one that happened to the Israelites of old. You remember the story, they grumbled about God in the wilderness and they, and they continued to grumble about God and they found fault with God's judgment and they found fault with God's leaders and they found fault with God's provision and they found fault with God's providence and they found fault with God's law and therefore they did not enter the promised land. Numbers 14, in the desert your bodies will fall, every one of you, 20 years or old or more who was counted in the senses and who grumbled against me. No promised land. Critical attitude, habitual complaining, that that's the deceiver's bent. It's excessive. It goes way beyond what is acceptable and what is reasonable. Luther says they are marked by whispered expressions of discontent. 
And so how does it work out to us? Well, they're unhappy with God's providence. They are fault finders, verse 16, which means they're always complaining about their lot, the lot that God has given them. They're complaining about what God's providence has placed them and what God hasn't done for them. In our day, they would be the kind of pseudo-Christian that has always run into the next big religious thing because the dissatisfaction of their unregenerated life remains. So whether they're grumbling and finding fault with their equals or grumbling or finding fault with their superiors or finding fault with God, his church, his laws, his restraints, theirs is a problem of constant dissatisfaction. And of course, because their mind is dead, because they're not in Christ, they think that everything they think is right. Therefore, everything has to be their way. When it is, it doesn't feed their inner beast Isn't that true? When we think we have to get everything our way, it doesn't satisfy. Hence the grumbling and complaining for these deceivers. And when things do not go their way, since it isn't their way, they find fault and they grumble. It's a horrible way to exist. It's a horrible cycle of an unregenerated life. And then Jude says they follow their own desires. Again, verse 16, Luther on this. Luther's so clever. Listen to what he says. They will not let the ordinary calling of a Christian which serves one another be their guide. It's beautiful, isn't it? The ordinary callings of the Christian, the basics of the Christian life serve them so they can serve others and be their guide, but they start new callings. Remember the dreamers? New callings and new offices and they pretend to serve God in them. So these are awkward, gloomy people who are rebellious people and they're hiding in the church. And Jude says at the end of verse 16, they, they hide also by boasting about themselves. Braggart. And who cause others in their boasting to, boasting to marvel at themselves. That's the flatterer, right? They want people to be marveling at themselves for deceiving, cruel, selfish reasons. It's politics. But even all that still can't kill the monster of din, discontent in their lives. Why? Well, they have no Savior. They're not united to Christ. They are not united to His death. They are not united to His resurrection. And therefore, they are dead in heart and mind. And Ephesians 2 even says that they're following the the ruler of this air, the evil one. So now it makes sense. Verse 16. Now, loved ones, please. This is a mercy that God would warn us of this judgment. The verses... The verses 15 and 14 and 15, it's a depiction of the ultimate penalty that God will give to those who oppose him. And the consistency that has marked the telling of this story from holy men of God since the beginning of all creation. Think of that. What a grace. The consistency that has marked this judgment in many ways is a warning to its reality as it reveals the certainty of this day as an appointment everyone who has ever existed will keep. And of course, in verse 16, the makeup of those who will be punished at it. Memento morti. That is a 16th century phrase that means meditations on death. And in the 16th and 17th century in Europe, there were a great many number of books and sermons and prayers that were printed for God's people because death was everywhere. And frankly, loved ones, death is everywhere here. And those resources were printed so that Christian people would be be more sober-minded about the realities of death, 
about the realities of suffering and the realities of the coming judgment. So there were books and prayer, or books and uh, prayers for wartime and famine and disease and, and sick, ch- sick children and the death of children, which was very common at that time. And one of the prayers was as follows, and I would just please ask you to listen. Oh God, imprint upon our hearts such a dread of thy judgments and such a grateful sense of thy goodness to us as may make us both afraid and ashamed to offend thee. And above all, keep in our minds a lively remembrance of that great day in which we must give a strict account of our thoughts and words and actions to him whom thou hast appointed the judge of the quick and the dead, thy son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So it's very clear. Judgment is coming. It's very clear. One question. Are you ready for it? Are you ready for it? And Jesus Christ offers himself freely to you this morning if you're not. Second question. If you're ready for the judgment, is it not the most sensible and loving thing to tell as many people as you can about this judgment? Think it out as we prepare to take communion now. You bow with me and pray. And as I pray, if the men who will be serving communion this morning will come forward, and I'm going to let my closing prayer from the sermon be actually the New City Catechism because it fits perfectly. Will God allow our disobedience and idolatry to go unpunished? No. Every sin is against the sovereignty, holiness, and goodness of God and against His righteous law. And God is righteously angry with our sins and will punish them in His just judgment both in this life and in the life to come. Amen.